As we planned for our cross-country trip that we took back in May and in June, I went to the different websites of some of the national parks, and Yellowstone stuck out in my head the most as went through what are the things to see. It's a massive park. Uh, you could spend weeks there. You could have spent a whole month there. Uh, just scratch the surface of what there is to see. But I remember scrolling down through and reading about the, uh, the different pools that you can look at, the hot springs and the uh, expecting to see the wildlife like the, the buffalo and the elk, uh, hoping to see a grizzly bear, which I think we saw a blurred brown spot on the mountainside that we were told was a grizzly bear, and uh, maybe even wolves and all these different things. And I remember scrolling to the bottom of one of the different websites, which really, uh, this last phrase that they had kind of summarized my, our experience with the park, thankfully not firsthand, but just our, our attitude where it's said at the bottom of the, the National Park Service website for Yellowstone, right, to in, encourage visitors to come, or it said, Yellowstone is not a safe place. <laughs> like, okay. And that was our experience throughout different things, like Badlands, there's warnings about how the rattlesnakes could kill you or the falls could kill you. Uh, Yellowstone uh, has its own Grand Canyon. Uh, you could fall in and die. The boiling water of the hot springs could kill you, and they tell you about other people that it's killed, and the, the bison can kill you, and, and at least two, if not three people, were gored by bison since we left, um, some who were farther away from the bison than, than we were at certain times. Uh, the elk can kill you. The wolves can kill you. The Old Faithful could kill you. You go to Glacier, Beautiful water, and more people drown in glacier than anything else that happens at that park, uh, danger-wise, so the water can kill you, and so many things could kill you on these national parks. You'd think that they would just, like, bar the gates and, and not let anyone in. They're dangerous, uh, yet we, we, we went. We had a good time. We stayed in the middle of the boardwalks. That was, that was Leanne's passion. We stay in the middle of the boardwalks. Uh, but we were able to enjoy our time because of the awareness of our danger. And if you're, you're foolish when confronted with danger, uh, then you're in a greater danger. And we talked about the danger of our sinfulness last week with the fact, the truth, the reality, the promise that the wrath of God is coming because of sin. Uh, sin that we know dwells in us, sin that we commit, and yet we don't need to proceed with a terror and fear or try to avoid living this life, but we need to respond to that danger, and that's really the context of the passage that we have. To try to help us understand throughout Colossians where we're going today, Paul had prayed in chapter 1, verse 10, he was praying that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That was back in maybe February or March where we talked about that. But as, as a goal, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord uh, and with behavior that, that he deserves as our God and Savior, behavior that is fully pleasing to him, which sounds like a pipe dream, but yet it's Paul's prayer, which means that in Christ it's possible. That also is kind of echoed in Paul's first command in the letter, which doesn't come until chapter 2, verse 6. We talked about back at the beginning of August. Therefore, with all of the truths of who Christ is and what he's done for us, echoing in our minds, which he summarizes as, you know, Christ Jesus is Lord, firstborn, firstborn, and all of those things. 
as you received, accepted as true, the claim, Christ Jesus the Lord, here's the command, so walk in him. Walk worthy of the Lord. Walk with Christ as our Lord. And this echoes what we see and and could spend so much time looking at in, in so many passages, Old and New Testament, that teach us that God's salvation is not merely deliverance from the wrath that we talked about last week. It is that, but it's not just that. It's not merely deliverance from wrath, but a deliverance to holiness. Deliverance from wrath and the sin that causes that wrath, but a finality, there's a completion to that, where it's a deliverance to holiness. And this is the fullness of the redemption that we have in Christ. Not just not going to hell, not just not going to hell, eventually getting to go to heaven, but experiencing the transformation, the deliverance from sin right now in our lives. That's the fullness of redemption that we see in Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in us. Sanctification. Holy making. That's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in those who have come to Christ. Over and over again, God commands his people to be holy. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, uh, commands, we, we, it sums this up nicely. As he who called you is holy, as God is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, I, God, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy in all your conduct. And I hope that a question comes to your mind each time that you read a passage like this and hear God's call for you to be holy, a call for you to live righteously. What is the question that comes to your mind when you read this? How? How can sinners like us, like me, how can we be holy? And our first attempt at how is obvious. Follow the rules. Sounds good at face value. There's a big problem with that, according to Paul in Colossians. An emphasis on rule keeping can actually trap us and take us captive away from Christ. It can lead us to love shadows instead of the substance that is Jesus. An emphasis on rule keeping can disqualify us, can disconnect us from Christ and his body. And while it looks good from the outside, rule keeping is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 23. Paul wants us to pursue holiness in a different way than merely exerting our own effort in rule-keeping. So how can sinners like us be holy? If it's not rule-keeping, then what is it? Well, then, when we recognize that futility of rule-keeping, we can have a second attempt that might flow out of our helplessness in the first attempt. If it's not by me doing it, if we can't become holy by our own effort at rule-keeping, maybe we don't become holy on our own at all. After all, throughout the Old Testament, we read that God is the Lord who sanctifies us. God says of himself, I am the one who makes you holy. Ah, 
There it is. It's not by me keeping the rules. It's not by me doing anything. It's by the work of God in me. So, so do we just sit back and wait to be made holy? Do we, should we let go and let God take care of it? Maybe sanctification isn't active by rule keeping. It's passive by trusting and waiting. And, and while I admire the God-centeredness of this kind of thinking, what about all the commands that God gives his people to follow? First Peter 1 did not say, wait for me to make you holy. It said, be holy in all your conduct. So we aren't holy by activity, and we aren't holy by passivity. Kind of what's left. <laughs> so how can sinners like us be holy? Well, in one sense, I think it's, it's not an either or. Uh, it's really, it's a both and. It's not activity, rule keeping without God. And it's not just leaving it to God without keeping the rules that he's given to us. Sanctification is God's work in us that is our work with God's help. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 spells this out clearer than any other passage because he uses the same word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who works? Do you work? Yes. Are you the only one who works? No. You work. God works. God's work makes you work because God works because you, because God, because you, because I. It's both. You cannot pursue holiness without God, but you do not have to wait on God to start pursuing holiness. Because if, here's the, here's the truth, and this, this is such a long introduction, that's okay. I'm, I'm at least okay with it. You do not have to wait on God to start pursuing holiness because if you desire to pursue holiness, it's because God is already at work in you. So you're like, should I wait? No. If you care, it's not the flesh. The world, the flesh, the devil, our enemies, do not want you to be like Jesus. And so that which is inside of you that longs to be more like Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit, working in you. And what he is drawing you to what he has planted in you, he will water and, and grow to transform you. God is already at work in you, and he is faithful to bring his good work in you all the way to completion. And that process is super important, and not, not even process, give me a second here, that thinking of us, really of God and us because of God in us, with God in us, that back and forth of trusting and obeying? As I've thought about our passage in Colossians for today, which is uh, in chapter 3, and it's sort of last week's text as well. Technically, I, I kind of took a piece from last week's text, verses 5 to 7, and we set that to the side to look at it, and we got to put it back in. 
I first looked at this because I, I want a process. I've even said process because I have a hard time getting the word out of my head. I first looked at this passage, which is Colossians 3, 5 through 11, as, as the steps of a process that we're supposed to follow in order to be holy. Step one, step two, step three, step four, holiness. Because I want, I want a method, because I want a process. Uh, clear steps with a certain goal. But I recognized how easily looking at, at really everything from chapter 3 through chapter 4, the practical section of Colossians, as if the other part hasn't been practical, as if the other parts, Christ ruling over all things, is not incredibly applicable to our lives. But when we start, we'll get to wives, husbands, children. But before that, we have to interact with this passage. But if we go from chapter 2, don't be distracted by rule-keeping, into chapter 3 and 4, where Paul gives rules, if we don't keep the whole of Colossians together, uh, then we just have a new set of rules. But is all Paul saying in the New Testament and other places, is it, is it just, don't follow those rules, follow these rules? Is it just a replacement of rules? Or is there something different than rule-keeping? I, I submit it's something different than rule-keeping. Because it's not like, oh, the old rules couldn't stop the indulgence of the flesh, but the new rules can. No, he's like, rules don't work. Something different has to happen. And so this is not four steps to follow, because that can distract us from Christ and cause us to rely on our own effort. Even calling it a process makes it sound like a one-and-done kind of thing. I had to install a toilet this week. I found the steps online. Before the steps, I didn't have a working toilet. At the end of the steps, so far, I do have a working toilet. If I follow the steps correctly, I will continue to have a working toilet. I like processes. Product, done, move on to the next thing. And we want holiness to be like that, but it isn't. This isn't really a process. And Keith and I wrestled together with this idea. We came up with, with the word pattern. I think pattern covers this a little bit better. The pattern of sanctification. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul provides us with a pattern of the Holy Spirit's work in us and through us. As we live in this pattern, then, we are sanctified. As we live in this pattern, we are sanctified, we are made holy. And in this pattern, we are transformed to reflect the glory of Jesus and our new life in him. A pattern. I'm going to read Colossians 3, 5 through 11. See if you can identify the pattern. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all. Did you catch the pattern? If not, that's okay. I'm going to read another passage, what I'd call a sister passage to this, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 to 24, because Paul in Ephesians 4 gives us the same pattern. Ephesians 4, 21 to 24. This is a truth that you were taught in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you catch similarities between that and, and, and uh, identify pieces, at least, of the pattern. I'm not going to leave you hanging anymore. I'll, I'm going to give you the pattern. And it's what I'm going to call the four R's of faith-fueled repentance. The four R's of faith-fueled repentance. Why faith-fueled repentance? Because our lives, as Martin Luther once wrote, the life of the Christian The whole life of the Christian is supposed to be one of repentance. And another word for Christian that we often say, it starts with a B, is believer. Not the one who believed, the one who believes. We live in faith. And what does faith do? Faith repents. And what is repentance? It's living by faith. Faith Faith-fueled repentance. Four R's of faith-fueled repentance are recognizing, removing, renewing, replacing. Recognizing, removing, renewing, replacing. The pattern of faith-fueled repentance, the pattern of God's work in sanctifying us as his people. First R, recognizing. First R of the pattern of faith-fueled repentance is recognizing your sin. As we live our Christian lives, we read God's word, we sometimes come across stark, clear examples of sin, like in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We come across other examples like verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying to one another like verse 9. We see that the Bible calls these things sins and then we recognize those sins in our own lives. A lot of times when we look at this type of passage, Paul gives these categories. We could spend a whole sermon talking about, well, what does constitute sexual morality? What is the definition of anger or wrath? And I think a lot of times when we look at these words, which really aren't that difficult to understand, when we're asking what they mean, we're kind of like the man that talked to Jesus. What's the, set, the commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? And why he's asking that is not because he has a desire to obey but he just has a desire to know what exactly does this encompass? Who do I not have to love? Because he could have just left him and been like, oh, well, maybe everybody's my neighbor, but if I love everybody, then I'll certainly obey this. But he's looking for a loophole. And when we look at this text, we can also be looking for loopholes. What is this impurity? Is this an evil desire? 
Is my longing for that, is that covetousness? My response to this person, was that anger? When I acted toward that, when I spoke to them in that way, was that my own wrath, my response to a perceived wrong? When I spoke this to that person, was that slander? Was that gossip or was that just a prayer request? We see what the word calls sin and we know what's in our lives and our conscience connects the dots between those. Beginning the process pattern, see, can't get it out of my head. The pattern of faith-fueled repentance begins with seeing what the Bible says is sin and recognizing and admitting those sins in our own lives. And it involves acknowledging the sinfulness of our sins rather than making excuses. I wasn't angry because I was hungry. I wasn't angry because I was tired. I wasn't angry because of my kids. I was angry because I'm a sinner, right? Calling it what it is, recognizing your sin. Sometimes we have these stark examples of these things. But as we mature in our faith, we struggle against these obvious sins, and we also come to know more and more how deep the roots of sin run into our hearts. We recognize the mental side of sexual immorality rather than just the physical side. To where it's not just like, oh, I don't have a problem with that because I don't go visit prostitutes. Right? I haven't slept with my neighbor's wife, so I'm good. Right? But as Jesus calls us to, it's like there's more to it than that. And so we start to see, like, really my heart is bent in a different direction. It needs to be corrected. It needs to be made new. We feel our covetousness, not just in stomping our feet and pouting and demanding that we have what others have, but in a simmering discontent, a distrust against the God who didn't give that to us. Really, that person shouldn't have that. I should have that. It becomes becomes more internal, might become quieter, becomes more constant. That's not new sin. That's just recognizing what's there. Even if we don't yell at our spouse or our kids or people in traffic, we may be nearly constantly irritated that people don't live up to our standards or our expectations. We're still angry, but we keep it tucked away inside. I yell at people in my head a whole lot more than I yell at people with my mouth but my heart is still sinful. Recognizing your sin, my sin, is the beginning of this pattern of faith-fueled repentance. We also go, grow in recognizing how many things that we do and love that, that are just earthly, old self-practices. There's so many things that are fine and good and right for us to do that can still distract us from Christ. So the first outward overt sins, and then we kind of grow and we recognize inward uh, covert sins, and then we recognize that even in the good things of life, even in our enjoyment, we lack gratitude and we just love them more than we love Jesus. We're just still committed to earthly ways as if we have not died to those things in Christ. Work is a gift. Rest is a gift. Both can distract us from Jesus. Both work and rest. Family is a gift. Friends are a gift. Both can distract us from Christ. 
And we can't just get away from work and get away from rest and get away from family and get away from friends. It's not a matter of just removing all those things or setting up rules, but the fact that we need to be transformed. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit uses God's word to convict us of sin, drawing our attention to what is earthly in us, whether it's an overt sin or whether it's a more subtle Uh, covert sin, or whether it's just the fact that our affections aren't set first and foremost on Jesus. The Holy Spirit points these things out to us, and when you are confronted with your sin, do you recognize it as sin? Do you acknowledge your sin and confess it? Put to death what is earthly in you in order to do that. Like, where is this pattern in the text, Peter? Are you making things up? Well, what's earthly in you? You got to recognize it before we can move on to that next step. So do you acknowledge or do you seek to hide it? Do you seek to suppress the thought of your sin, to silence your guilty conscience, to ignore the Holy Spirit using his word on your conscience to draw your attention to the sin that he knows about? Don't sear your conscience. Recognize your sin for what it is. Recognizing our sin is that first R of the pattern of faith-fueled repentance. The second is removing your sin. We recognize our sin. What is earthly in me? Is this sexual immorality? Is this anger? Was that lying? We recognize that. And then the second R steps in, we need to remove our sin. And Paul explains this using two different images here in Colossians 3. Uh, The first is put to death. Wow, what a strong, what a strong phrase. What a strong command that God has given. When we have identified, when we've recognized what the sin is in us, covert or overt or just a different longing for something that is our affections not set on Jesus, what do we do when we recognize those things? Well, what would you do if you recognized the fact that there was a venomous snake in your child's bedroom. Well, isn't that cute? Maybe they can cuddle with it. Maybe they can keep it as a, as a pet, unless you do keep it as a pet and it's in a cage. And That's you. Pick a different metaphor. Oh, that, that rabid, wild raccoon living in our garage. That's great. Uh, Adele, could you go to the garage and, and grab something from our fridge? <laughs> Well, what about the raccoon? Probably won't attack you again. That foam, maybe it's not rabies. When we recognize that type of a danger, put it to death. Kill it, right? Very clear. This is like, well, if it's not dangerous enough, then you don't need to kill it. Oh, a cute little squirrel running around in my backyard. That's fine. Not, not a danger to me, but, you know, if it rabid and vicious, put it to death. Well, are these sins dangerous? Well, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So they're lethal to you. So what are you going to do about them? Are you going to live with it? Are you going to take it and just sort of tuck it to a side of your life to be able to sort of draw on every so often? Kind of like, well, I don't want this sin to be like a big part of my life, but I can keep it under control. I can, I can raise that rabid raccoon as a pet, right? And go out and pet it. It probably won't bite me and infect me. 
it's not really a danger. Well, how do we view that sin that we've recognized? Are we going to put it to death as wicked beasts that threaten our souls? We read in Romans 6 the same type of thing. We recognize what those desires are and we treat it with brutality. We don't try to coddle sin. We don't try to just live alongside of it. We don't think that it can coexist with our pursuit of righteousness. We deal with it starkly and we murder it. The term that was used used to be mortify. Mortify your members, identifying that which is sinful and treating it radically. You had an infection on your finger, better to lose a finger than to die. Does it remind you of any stories that Jesus told? If your eye offends you, one of your members, something that's just merely earthly, if your eye offends you, pluck it out because it's better to go into life with only one eye than to be cast into hell with the wrath of God. If your arm offends you, cut it off. If your anger, you're living in anger, put it to death. Don't give the devil or your flesh any opportunity to take more of a root control in your life than you have. Removing your sin. Putting to death is the first image that he also uses this putting away or putting off. He talks about this, verse 8, put them all away, and then he uses it again and used it in Ephesians. This is like the filthy garments of your old way of life. You ever working out in the, the yard? I think I probably have used this before at one uh, point in high school. I had a job moving, uh, doing landscaping, moving different dirt and different things like that for, uh, for a gentleman with a really nice house. And then uh, he got some free dirt from the city of Charleston one time because it wasn't dirt. Uh, it was sewage. And nobody wanted to work with me while I was, none of my friends wanted to come and help rake what had been waste. And I did not want to stay in those clothes after the work was done. You recognize the filthiness of clothing that is on you. You want to take it off and to put it away. Just wear what is filthy or what is offensive to you. We have, we have an illustration. I have my passions of coffee and, and disc golf. Uh, Leanne likewise has her passions. You all have your passions too. Maybe you're obsessed with football or um, I don't know what other people, I just know what I'm obsessed with. But Leanne is a passionate person as well. And right now, uh, she's very passionate about fibers. You can't just call it cloth or material. It's fibers. Uh, polyester offends Leanne. Uh, like, deeply. And so polyester has been purged from our house. And it's, it has been put off. And, and she received a, a T-shirt. I think I have. Did I, don't I have permission? I think I have. I do now. I thought I had permission. Uh, it's true. True anyway. Just don't give her a polyester t-shirt. But somebody did. Uh, gave her polyester t-shirt and she wore it and it bothered her. It felt different. It, it made uncomfortable, right? Totally legitimate. It's fine. This is a 100% cotton shirt, by the way, because uh, I love my wife. She could not wait to put off that wretched polyester shirt and put on the cotton because it breathes. You know, it just feels better on your skin. It just allows air in, allows air out. It's so, so wonderful. I don't know what offends you. 
don't know what bothers you. It's something that catches your skin funny, but when you don't like what you're wearing because it's filthy or because it's, it's, it's uh, defiled by nature of it not being silk or cotton or some other natural fiber, you got to put it off. You have a job promotion where you used to wear a uniform for one job and then you, you have a different job, you put on a different uniform, you're not going to do that task that you used to do. If an athlete changes teams and then plays against that first team, he doesn't wear that uniform anymore. He's wearing a new uniform. If he's wearing a new uniform, he's not going to do that which benefits the first team, his former team. He is put off, and then he's reclothed himself in a new uniform with a new identity, and he's going to act like that. I think all of these things kind of help us to see that we, we look at that which is outward on us, recognizing its sinfulness, and Paul's like, you've got to get this off of you. Don't wear it and then live like it, but strip it off. Having seen the sinfulness of our sin, we, we now seek to stop sinning. This response of mine, this is sinful anger. I must not respond that way. God, help me to live in the freedom from that sin. Sometimes we recognize sin, we don't remove it. That just reminds me of James 1. Don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer of it. Oh, that attitude of mine, that's covetousness, that's anger, that's impurity, that's covetousness, or whatever those types of things are. And then we're like, okay, look in the mirror, recognize your sin, and then do nothing about it. As if it's going to go away on its own, as if it's not something that offends God and is harming to your soul. Now, we, we recognize your sin, we remove our sin. That's that second part of that pattern. But then there's the third, which I think in one sense is, is the most pivotal, which is the, the R of renewing your mind. And the third R of the pattern of faith-fueled repentance is renewing your mind. And Paul talks about this in verse 10. He's saying that we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of, of our creator. Our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is also the outflowing of the commands that Paul spoke of earlier in chapter 3. Set, seek the things that are above. Set your minds, your hearts, your affections on things that are above. In Romans chapter 12, Paul used this same, this is another pattern, another uh, sister passage to this pattern. Do not, be tran- do not be conformed to this world. Recognize where you are, remove it. But be transformed, which is actually part four of the pattern, by the renewal of your mind. It's not just remove, and it's not just what we'll get to with replacing, but in the midst of this is this all-important part of this pattern, which is the renewing of your mind. And this is not something that you can do on your own. Can you recognize sin in your life on your own? Yes. Uh, can you uh, remove a, a manifestation of sin from your life? Yes. Uh, and we're going to get to replacing. Can you do that on your own? And the answer is yes. But you cannot renew your mind on your own. It has to be the work of God. I think it's the, the, the wording in Ephesians is a, a command to have something done to you. Be transformed. Be changed. They just like, wait, so change myself? No. Renew your mind? No. Be renewed. 
You're transformed by your mind being renewed, by the Holy Spirit renewing your mind. And this is the work of God, something that you cannot do on your own, but God has shown us and leads us to the spring where our minds are renewed, which is his word. He said, this this is where you go for me to renew your mind. And so we need, when we think about our, our sin and what needs to be removed, and as we think about what needs to be replaced, we need our thinking changed about that in order for this to be something that God is doing and not just a process. And I'll I'll dig into that a little bit more in a few minutes. Renewing your mind, and I'm going to pass because I'm going to try to demonstrate what that looks like, that your thinking and your heart needs to be changed in relation to sin and righteousness, what you have to put off and why, and what you need to put on and why, that it's a whole shift of thinking, not just do it. So that fourth is this replacing your sin. That's the fourth R of the pattern of faith-fueled repentance, replacing your sin. And for the most part, I'm going to touch on that a little bit, and we're going to dive in more on that next week uh, as Paul talks in verse 12 more significantly about putting on. Right? He uses, thankfully, he uses that same, the, the other side of that same thing. Put off, but don't run around without clothing on. Put on. Put off the old. Put off the dirty, put on the new, put on the clean, put on the new uniform, and then live like that, replacing your sin. Let's let's illustrate this. Whenever I think of repentance, I think it's helpful to, to think about it in terms of some illustrations, and Paul illustrates it for us, but let me set the stage first. Uh, if I'm driving, and I'm on 64, and I'm heading east, am I heading toward Huntington? If you aren't good with directions, the answer to that is no. I'm not heading toward Huntington. I could be convinced that I am, but, but I'm not, because from here, Huntington isn't east, Huntington is west. And so if I recognize the fact, I'm going the wrong direction. I could, mile after mile, keep saying, this isn't the way to Huntington. East is the wrong direction. Huntington's west. I'm on, the wrong, I'm on the wrong side of the interstate. I can just keep recognizing my error, uh, but that's not repentance. I can even be talking to Leanne and be like, honey, I'm sorry, we're going to be terribly late uh, because we are not heading toward Huntington. This is terrible. I should not keep driving eastbound. At some point, be like, what, what, why are you still driving? But I can't just like stop in the middle of the interstate. Number one, that's dangerous. Uh, but also, does stopping get me any closer to my destination? It doesn't. I have, to, I have to not just recognize my error and certainly not just stop, but I do have to stop forward, get off on an exit, and turn around. I have to remove my error to stop progressing in the way that I was going. In the midst of that, my thinking need to be like, well, which way do I go? In my mind, this illustration always takes me to the St. Albans exit. So I'm heading that way. I need to, to get off, but I don't want to take the whole exit and then head into Winfield. 
I'm not heading the same direction, but I picked a different error. I need to turn around and head westbound on I-64 and move in that direction, which is the full circle of that. See, repentance isn't just be like, I'm wrong. Repentance isn't just, I'm wrong and I'm going to stop. Repentance isn't just, I'm wrong and, I, and I'm going to stop and, and I know what I should be doing. Repentance is, I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm going to stop. That's the right way. And then I'm moving in that direction. See, repentance is a U-turn of moving in the other direction. That's the illustration of the pattern that I want to give. Paul does this for us. And he uses lying to one another as an illustration of this pattern. So driving is the first, lying is another. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Pattern of faith-fueled repentance. Lying is a sin, and what I'm doing in this instance, that's lying. Recognizing my sin. Removing lying from yourself. I was doing it, guilty of it. Don't lie to one another. Stop lying. Don't do it. Don't lie to one another. And then this all-important, right? I think it's the heartbeat of it. And it's good because it's what God is doing in us is the renewing your mind in regard to lying and in regard to the truth that your thinking needs to be transformed. Please stay with me. Thinking lying's wrong, I shouldn't lie. That's true. But it's not the depth of renewing of our mind that God is working in us. It's sort of a immature thinking about that sin. It's kind of like if I touch, if my two-year-old touches the stove and his hand gets slapped, be like, that was unpleasant. I shouldn't do that. And even just thinking like, oh, because of lying, the wrath of God is coming. I don't want the wrath of God. I won't lie. That is true. Part of scripture but it's not the fullness of the renewing of our mind that comes about to lead us from lying to truth. We need to pursue more mature thinking like this. Lying isn't just wrong because God says it's wrong. Oh, it is, but that's not as far as we can go. Lying is part of my old self. Parting is, lying is part of the old self with its practices. It's how I acted when I had that other uniform on. That's actually what I died to in Christ. So we start like, wait a minute, if that's who I used to be, but, but the scripture and the gospel says I've actually died to who I was, that means that that as being a liar, that's not my identity anymore. I'm new. It's not I don't get to lie, it's I don't have to lie. That was actually slavery that I have died to and I have risen to a new life where that doesn't have to involve lying anymore. I really can't say that phrase enough, that when we're talking about being confronted with sin, it's like we need to move from I don't get to to I don't have to, which is the freedom of living the new life in Christ. Like God sent Jesus so that I don't have to be a slave to lying anymore. Right? That's the change of thinking. I can shed the uniform of a sinful enemy of God 
For God has given me new clothes to put on. And how beautiful is this, that Paul gives a command and he weds it with a truth. Put off. Do you see it? Because you have put off. This almost ripped my Bible page. Put it to death. Put them away. Verse 5. Verse 8. Do you see verse 9? What's the reality? You have put off the old self. The Holy Spirit stripped that filthy uniform off of you. Are you going to pick it back up and wear it again? You don't have to do that. Why would you want to? I have put on the old self. Ah, right? We sin and we hate it. Why do I do what I don't want to do? And why don't I do what I do want to do? wretched, frustrating man that I am. Who is going to deliver me? Jesus has delivered me. Why would I live lying anymore? That's old self. Why would I act like I'm single when I'm married to a wonderful woman? Like, why would I do that? Why would I act like I'm something that I'm not rather than enjoying the blessedness of what I am, right? You're not, you're not just putting on. It's already been put on you. It's not like try to earn the righteous clothing of Christ, but just recognize the fact through the renewing of your mind, knowing what is true, that you actually already are clothed in something new. The renewing of your mind. Thinking, I am right now already part of God's new creation. I am the beginning through Christ of that which is to come. The fallenness of this world, like I've already been shifted out of that. That's the reality of my new life in Christ. I've already been made new. And now I must be transformed outwardly, transformed physically to reflect what is true of me inwardly. God sees me one way and I don't act like he sees me to be. I want to act like God sees me. God is renewing, recreating in me, recreating me in knowledge after his image, the image of my creator, Jesus Christ, right? That's creation language. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter one, that's old creation reality that we reflect the image of God. It's been marred because of our sin, but there's a new creation coming. Jesus is the ruler of that creation. Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of that creation. And then there's us. You aren't just part of this world, which is passing away with all of its evil desires. You are part of God's new work. And if lying is part of that which is passing away, why would you lie? Truth is part of the new creation. It's like, yeah, this is what God's doing in me. I want to live that out. That's who I am. There's a Godward vertical dynamic to not lying that we recognize in uh, in the renewing of our mind. There's also a manward horizontal dynamic to not lying. And this is what Paul centers on. Because at first it's kind of like, oh, I guess verse like 11, maybe 10 and 11 are are like a whole other sermon. Uh, But he uses it, I think, verses 9 through 11, he's still talking about lying because he's still demonstrating what needs to happen in the renewal of our mind. Who are we not to lie to in verse 9? Do not lie to, what does it say? one another. 
And in the course of Scripture, is that a common phrase or is that an uncommon phrase? One another. Common or uncommon? Common. And who is it referring to? The body of Christ, fellow believers. Right? There's this manward element of it. Like, who am I lying to? I'm lying to my brothers and sisters in Christ. But here, in this body that I've been brought into, in this new creation that this is just the seedlings of, here, there aren't those type of differences that people so often use to justify actions. Well, that person is a such and such, so they don't deserve my loving them as my neighbor. They don't deserve me loving me as myself. But then we start to identify, well, what kind of a body is this? It's a whole body that's part of this new creation. It's a body where there's not Greek and Jew. I mean, how often is that the case in the, in the New Testament where they're like, well, the, there's this sharp distinction between Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Greek people, and it's kind of like, and, and when we have those type of differences, we start to divide among ourselves and we're like, you know, that person doesn't deserve me to treat them this way, right? Actually, it's not even a horizontal. It's actually, there's a hierarchy. I'm a Jew. They're a Greek. I don't have to tell the truth to them. It's like, there's not that division anymore. Like, oh, well, that person's circumcised, uncircumcised. I'm more spiritual than they are, so that influences my actions toward them. And Paul's saying, like, no, that's been dissolved. Barbarian and and Scythian. You've heard the word barbarian, right? Scythian probably not as much, but uh, do you know where the word barbarian came from? It's what the civilized Greek speakers called people like the Germanic peoples and other peoples of other languages uh, whose language they didn't understand because it sounded like like all those barbarians. Really? That's where the word came from. It's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so much more cultured than them. A bunch of random hillbillies. Maybe people say about us. Scythians were also just sort of the lowest class of people and north of the Black Sea, just not worth being treated well. And so we start to be like, oh, there's these distinctions in the body. And maybe, maybe we're not thinking about it in terms of skin color. Maybe we're not thinking about it in terms of like wealth distinctions as to how we treat other people. Uh, maybe it's because we have theological differences with them. It's like, I don't have to treat them loving them as I love myself because of this. That's just my spouse. That's just my kids. That's just this person. And Paul's just kind of like, man, let all those distinctions just dissolve. Because in Christ, in the new creation, there isn't Jew, Gentile, there isn't barbarian, there isn't slave or free. You don't come here as an employer and an employee, a master and a servant. We don't even come here uh, in Galatians, he even says male and female, that we are all one in Christ. And if we are one in Christ in a new creation and we really think about that, Right? That Marianne is part of the new creation? It's like, how could I then go to Marianne as part of the new creation, a member of the same body of which she is a member, with Christ as our head, and to be like, you know what? I can treat her with lying. Like, how could I do that? Careful if you sit on the front row. But if my thinking is changed by the Spirit, and I look at you, it's kind of like fellow members of the same body, It's kind of like I think about, it's like, oh, you know, young, old, parents, not parents, married, single, rich, poor, white, black, male, female, whatever the case might be, right? And use all of these different things to change how I'm responding to people. And Paul's like, this is so great. Just scrap it all because everything and in everything, there's Christ. 
And so as I think about you and the renewing of my mind, it's not just kind of like don't lie because it's wrong. It's like, would I do that to myself? Would I do that to a fellow member of Christ's body? Is that part of the new creation? There's so much more thinking about this. And we do this with, with everything. The word is sufficient to change and renew and transform our thinking about every sin and its replacement of every righteousness, that which we have to put off and that which we have to put on. And it's just, and I'm just scratching the surface of some of these things. It's like God has done something in Christ of which lying cannot be a part. So why would I lie to you? You're part of me. I'm part of you because we're part of Christ. That's transformative. That's how he renews our mind. There are other patterns of this. He, he's very clear in Ephesians 4, like stealing. I don't want to take as much time with this, but I love how he says this in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal. Stealing's wrong. Stop doing it. Recognize, remove. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And we're good with that. But I love this, so that he may have to share with anyone in need. Why shouldn't you steal? Because stealing is wrong. Okay, but that's not as far as Paul goes. Paul goes like, actually, I want your heart transformed so that instead of thinking that people are around for you to be able to take and abuse, that you're like, I'm actually here to give to them. The total opposite. A heart of, of covetous, idolatrous taking with renewed thinking, becomes like, how can I take what I have and how can I give it? I'm not going to take from Jake. I want to give to Jake. Maybe he has a need. I might have a covetous want. What if he has a need? How can I bless? Because that's how God has treated us. He doesn't take from us. He has given to us. I want to be like that. We're going to do more of this next week as Paul walks through other things that we are supposed to put on in verses 12 and 13 and 14. There are some clarifications, though. This is a lifelong cycle. This pattern, this is why it's not just steps in a process, as if one time you're like, oh, lying. Lying's a sin. I'm going to remove lying. I want to think differently about lying because I read this Bible verse, memorized it even, and now I'm going to tell the truth. Done. Lying's no longer a problem. You ever battled a sin? Has it been that easy? No, because it's not just steps in a process. It's not just the installation of a toilet, right? It's, it's the water that we, we live in, and it's cyclical, happening at various different stages with various different sins all at the same time. And you're like, I didn't, I, like, I haven't even started to think about this. How can you be saying this is happening? Because it's what the Holy Spirit is doing. That while you're recognizing one sin, your mind is being renewed by, about a different sin. And while you're removing one, you're in the process of having replaced another. Like in a thousand different ways, at a thousand different stages, like the Holy Spirit is working all of these things. Like we, we might not even be aware of what the Holy Spirit is renewing our minds about right now. Because it's work that he does in us. That when you're confronted with a sin, and this is the, also the problem of like not being a process, is because it's not just like, when you're confronted with lying or an opportunity presents itself that you just stop in the middle of the conversation and you're kind of like, okay, recognizing. So this is a sin, lying's wrong. Like, okay, I need to not lie right now. So don't say the lie. I'll renew my thinking. Hold on, sorry, hold on a second. It's like, okay, so the Bible said, well, this person lied, but Jesus is truth. Okay, so 
and then you speak the truth. It's like what your person will be like, what were you just doing for the last five minutes? Like we were in the middle of a conversation. Like that's not how it happens, which is why it needs to be that cyclical, lifelong process, a pattern that the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. Because you'll, you'll recognize while removing, while renewing, while replacing, all at the same time and all of these different things. That's why it's not just that process, but it is something that we engage in in this way. It's also, this is not just DIY, do it yourself. This is not an individualistic, do it on your own journey. If I inserted something, right, four parts to this pattern, four R's of faith-fueled repentance, if I inserted something in the middle of all of this, it would be the need, the desperate need for prayer. That I pray, would you help me recognize my sin? I pray, I just recognize this sin. Would you help me to, rep- to remove this sin? I would, ha- having sought to stop and head in the other direction, it's like, would you, would you renew my thinking about this? I don't want to just not sin. I want to not want sin more than I want Jesus, right? I want Jesus. I want to want Jesus more, and I can't just make myself do it. I need God to make me want Jesus more than I want lying or covetousness, right? So prayer inserts that, and as our thinking is renewed, it's like, would you help me to live that out? And even if you find some success in those type of things, here's what our flesh does, right? I'm not going to lie. All of the truth about that, I'm going to tell the truth, and then you know what else slips in? Ha ha! I just succeeded in putting to death lying. Pride pops up, like, oh, recognize this pride. Okay, don't be proud. Uh, Renew my thinking about pride. This isn't about me. This is about Christ. That's why it's just all these things, and it's not just you. If it's not by the Spirit, it's not happening. If it doesn't involve God's Word, just soaking yourself, you're not going to recognize what sin is without the Word. You're not going to know what to put off to remove without the Word. You can't have your mind thinking, you're renewed, uh, you're thinking renewed if it's not through the Word. You won't know what to replace it with, what God has replaced it with, without the Word. So you have to have the Spirit. You have to have God's Word. It has to involve prayer, and it has to have the body. Because God, through his spirit, with the word, uses the prayers of his people to help us see what needs to be recognized, what we haven't removed. And what I'm, you know, one of the thousand things that I need to have changed that God is working on, maybe it happens through uh, Ken or Eli or Pam, being like, you know what, this is what I see in you. But if we fail to have that one another aspect, this is another point that Laura Beth was pointing out this week. Like, when we lie to one another, you'd just be like, oh, how are you guys doing? We're fine. Yeah, everything's, everything's good. I'm not, I don't, I'm, yeah, nothing. Nothing's wrong. Everything's, everything's good. Well, number one, which is great, it's like, well, you just lied to me. Or I lied to you. And if I fail to see that the Spirit works through the Word and the prayers of His people as we are a body, that we have this one another, So like that you are part of the pattern that the Holy Spirit is working in me. And I'm part of the pattern of what the Holy Spirit is working in you. But if we try to keep ourselves individualistic, this is just me. I don't need the Spirit. I don't need the Word. I don't need prayer. And I don't need God's people. Then there's no repentance. And there's no victory. You actually have some stuff that you need to put off. Because like thinking that it's no Spirit, no Word, no prayer, and no body, 
is actually just part of the old life. There's a danger of isolating these things, though. Here's what each of these R's sound like when they are misused, misunderstood, or isolated from the rest. When we just come to verse 5, or we just come to verse 9, or any of these things, recognizing your sin, isolated from the pattern of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, becomes feel bad. Feel bad. And then you'll be holy. Feel bad. But that, is that it? Have you, have you tried that? Feeling bad enough? I've tried that. Never feel bad enough to just then be holy. It doesn't work on its own. None of them work on their own. I, removing your sin isolated from the pattern becomes, hey, stop it. There's this great, great sketch. Bob Newhart, and you know who Bob Newhart is? He's a psychiatrist in this little sketch. This woman comes in to, she's terrified of some things. So he sits down. He's like, I've got two words. Shouldn't take us long. I have this fear of being buried and alive in a box. And he said, okay, yeah, two two words, you should be able to remember them. And then he just shouts, stop it at her. (laughs) Repeatedly. Like, that's it. That's his his psychiatry advice. Well, stop it. Like, oh, well, I do this. Well, stop doing that. Have you tried that before? Like, oh, remove my sin. Oh, I just need the willpower to just stop. Is that the counseling advice we have? It's like, oh, I'm struggling with this type of thing. Well, stop doing that. Oh, thanks. I mean, we try with our kids. We think that's it. Stop fighting. Why are you yelling at each other? Wonder why. Well, just stop. Oh, thank you. But we look at those different things like, is that, is that all? Is that the redemption that we have in Christ? Just stop it? Like, that's, that's the power of the Holy Spirit on us? It's like, it doesn't work. If we pull that apart, it's not going to happen. Replacing becomes, oh, sorry, renewing your mind becomes, well, no more. Study harder. You can change your thinking. Memorize more scripture which again, we, our minds are renewed by the Spirit through the Word. But do you know that you can try to do all that on your own and that you will fail? And then replacing your sin just becomes that wretched, self-religious phrase of just do better. Do better. We try that as parents too. So many of these things just don't work. Feel bad. Stop it. No more. Do better. That's not what this text is saying. That misses the entirety of what God has done in us. That by Christ you have put off the old self. This must be the pattern of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. There's another piece to this. There's the futility of unbelief. And this is what I mean by that. While it's dangerous for Christians to seek to isolate these from each other, to just like, just feel bad, just stop, just no more, just do better. While it's, while it's dangerous for us because it leads us away from Christ, it's not the freedom that we're supposed to experience in the new life. If you are not a Christian and you seek to jump into this pattern, it will be of no use to you and, and worse. This text is not written to unbelievers seeking to justify themselves or to improve themselves before God so he will accept them. So if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, these four R's 
This is like really, this is not where, not where you're starting. It is, it is futile. It is useless. It is soul-condemning for you to just try this. To try this in order to make yourself acceptable before God. The only solution for our sin problem before God is trusting in Jesus as our Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. You cannot improve yourself into heaven even by trying to force yourself into this pattern. Because again, it's the pattern of what God does in those who have come to him, not the pattern of those who try to get God to like them. You must be changed by God. And this text is written to those of us who have already accepted the gift of forgiveness in Christ, have already been made new. And every attempt of merely human religions centers on one or more of these without the others and without the Holy Spirit. Despite your best efforts, you probably will not succeed in improving yourself. Even if you do, it will never be good enough to offer yourself as perfect before God. You must be rescued. There is no spiritual life without Christ. There is no putting off without Christ. There is no putting on without Christ. Give up trying to fix yourself and throw yourself before God's throne of grace to receive mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And then as you've been made new, then you can be transformed into what is new. Christians, Four R's of faith-fueled repentance, recognizing, removing, renewing, replacing. I think, according to God's word, that this is the pattern of God the Holy Spirit as he is transforming us into the image of Jesus. So let us seek to live in that pattern and and live out that pattern daily and hourly and minute by minute and, and moment by moment, prayerfully asking, God, would you help me to recognize and remove and renew and replace that I might be transformed into the image of Jesus for your glory. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm, I, want, I want to live in this pattern. I want to live out this pattern. I want to gratefully accept what Christ has done for me, what Christ is doing in me, Please transform us. Take your word. Use it to renew our mind. May you be glorified. Amen.